Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Mixtape Podcast Book Club. Today, the author we are going to be in conversation with is Dr. Osama Siddiqui, who is a lawyer by profession. Uh, but his first book is a fiction novel by the name of Snuffing Out the Moon. Uh, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Fatma. Uh, so my first question is going to be a very typical one. Um, you are a lawyer by profession. Aapka uh, profession mein CV is very uh, elaborate. So when did you decide that you also wanted to be a storyteller and author? Um, first, let me clarify, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I'm trained as a lawyer and I've worked as a lawyer. But for many years now, I've been a legal academic and I do policy advisory work. I actually advise the government on law reforms. I draft laws, I draft policies, and um, I do legal research and I've been teaching for several years. So um, storytelling is something which is, I think, uh, inherent and implicit in all our lives. Um, we're surrounded by stories, right? Uh, we're surrounded by all kinds of narratives. May they be religious narratives, they may be political narratives. Um, I think what makes human beings distinct uh, from all other species is this ability to envision a story and to tell a story. And the power of stories is, is tremendous because if you think, um, you know, stories and the notion of thinking in the abstract has allowed human beings to organize themselves in very large communities. And, and to subscribe to the notion of a religious or a nationalist or an ethnic identity and, and uh, you know, formed human societies, which are very complex societies. Uh, personally speaking, I always grew up with stories because I was fortunate um, that in my family, uh, there was a, a very strong tradition of reading. Um, nonfiction, yes, uh, depending on who I think of, there are people who are steeped in religion and in history. Uh, but a lot of fiction, and uh, both English and Urdu, and both highbrow and lowbrow. And uh, that sort of really is the very fortunate environment I, you know, found myself in. Now, it's a, it's a question which is not clear to me whether it's only uh, your environment which uh, stirs this desire to listen to stories and write, to, uh, write stories eventually, or is it something inherent which you... Uh, you know, genetically receive. I, I don't know. I don't think there's a clear answer to that. But um, so I've always found books to be the most precious, the most delightful refuge uh, and also stimulant. And even now, I mean, writing came later, but uh, what I look forward to most is reading and, and reading different literature. Um, I'd been wanting to write fiction for a very long time, but frankly, when you carve out a career in something else that takes up a lot of time. The advantage of law, of course, is that it's also all about language. And uh, not only does law and legal issues and legal contestations figure very prominently in uh, literature, um, I think there is also a parallel uh, structure, a parallel way of thinking in law, which is specific to itself. Literature, of course, allows you much more multifariousness, much more space, dexterity, to do things. And uh, in law also, when you're researching, when you're interacting with people, when you're looking at its engagement with society, you come across so many stories you want to tell. 
but it's not just stories about law you want to tell, right? If life is something you're fascinated about, there's so many other things which don't necessarily come under the rubric of law. So I think it, the desire to also tell your own story, the desire to also depict your own society and your own civilizational experience the way you look at it, the desire, of course, to communicate. I mean, all that is something which eventually triggers the desire to write. Um, and I think that's probably fundamental and common to every single writer who's ever written. So in my case too, eventually I found myself writing. I tried several times, but something clicked. And so I wrote this novel. I'd, writ I'd written other books before. So this is my fourth book, but my previous three books are on law, legal history, uh, constitutional law, uh, and things like that. So Snuffing Out the Moon is tells the story, very intimate personal stories, not just across um, various you know, phases of somebody's life or different characters' lives, but across civilizations. And while telling these intimate stories, they are touching upon very heavy topics like religion, you know, le legitimacy of authority. So can you just share about how you went about you know, thinking of interconnecting uh, these bigger issues with these personal stories and what made you uh, pan these out across civilizations? Not usually when we see sure, these sort of sure. uh, multi-theme stories, they're usually across some years or, you know, different characters in parallel universe, but you went across civilizations. So how did all that? So I th sure, sure. So I think uh, the, to answer the first part of your question, uh, the literature, which I particularly like, is the literature which tells a good story. Whatever philosophical, sociological, political themes it explores, it does so while telling a story. And I strongly feel that if somebody is writing a novel, the novel has to tell a story. The novel has to be very readable. It has to be engaging. It has to have all the ingredients of a good story, characters, plot, tension. Um, so the kind of books which call themselves a novel, but they start pontificating from the very start on some serious heavy duty kind of idea may have their own inherent value as, as thought pieces, but they're not particularly engaging as a story. So I, I mean, I'm recently reading the uh, Polish American writer, Isaac Beshevis Singer. Uh, I discovered Balzac. They tell very simple stories in a very simple manner, and yet there's an amazing complexity which they manage to bring towards you, whether it's in terms of the psychological dimension of their characters or in terms of how their characters are coping with complex politics. So they do eventually contemplate life and, and the cosmos and, and, and very fundamental and very important questions. But uh, at the same time, uh, the story flows and, and that makes it a lot more palatable. I mean, look at Shakespeare, for instance. Um, there's always a plot. There's always a, a lot of drama. He does, of course, write plays. And yet within that, you cannot say that Shakespeare does not explore deeper questions. If anything, Shakespeare, more than any sort of uh, writer who was a popular writer, has actually been a very profound writer. So I think I wanted to tell stories. Um, and then through those stories, it happened both consciously and subconsciously. I managed to uh, look into a lot of other uh, interesting things which had been bothering me. So this entire notion of organized religion versus spirituality, the contestation between science and religion, 
the notion of evil, what does that mean? Is it external? Is it internal? Is it man-made? And there's a lot of theology around it. The overwhelming question that why is it that bad things happen to good people or perfectly peaceful communities get wiped out? You know, these are very troubling questions about if there's a cosmic design, if there's justice, if there's compassion, then how come this happens? Um, also, whether we are repeating history, whether we are evolving in any way as human beings, or do we do the same things again and again? And the inherent structure of the human society is that of, a, of an apartheid-ridden society, right? So there are always people who are exploiting, and there are people who are being exploited. Um, and you know that quotation which you also used when you were publicizing this thing, right? So there is the exploited, there's the exploiter, or the bully and the bullied, and the, you know, the, those who are looking on. But I think I was also not just being pessimistic about it. I think what also fascinated me was the entire idea that there have always been people who have been detractors, who have been dissenters, right? And they have always questioned authority. Because authority is a very problematic thing, right? It can be abused. What is its basis of legitimacy? And the fact that these people have questioned uh, authority at different points in time, whether it's hegemony in the name of ritualistic religion, whether it's a satrapy, whether it's a Mughal kind of an empire, colonialism, nation state, or whatever may happen in the future, uh, that has been common. And these people have paid a price, you know, so they're heroes and heroines in one way because uh, they've always uh, uh, paid a price for it, but they have changed the course of history often for the better, because otherwise we could have been completely inundated and sort of burdened down with a particular notion of life and never progressed uh, but what is progress? That is also a question. Where are we headed? What happens? Um, then I think there are also uh, aesthetic aspirations, right? So there are things in life which really inspire us, may it be facets of architecture, may it be nature, may it be something else. And then it becomes incredibly important, um, I guess, for a writer at, at one level to also be able to convey your own appreciation for that. I've always loved fiction, which has had good descriptive passages. So that's the first part um, about the connectivity between telling a simple story of ordinary people and yet the larger background of the more complex questions and the kind of questions I looked at. Environment was an important question for me, right? So how does it change human existence and what happened and the mysteries about it? Um, why all these periods? Uh, um, simply because I feel that the questions cannot be limited to one period. Um, and my question at one level is whether these questions remain unchanged, right? So the human predicament and the human challenge remains unchanged. Um, the second question here is that, um, you know, I think the entire, I mean, I've always liked historical fiction. This is more ambitious historical fiction because I've gone to multiple eras, but uh, why not? I mean, there's been work like this done before. I mean, Puratul and Heather's name always comes up. It's a huge inspiration when I first read Akkadarya. And so, yeah, you, you borrow your structures and your ideas and um, from previous writers and you stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say. But I did a few other additional things. My questions are different from her questions. I go into more eras. My stories are different from her stories. Hers is actually a much more philosophical book. So even when she tells the story, there's a lot more uh, going on in terms of questions being asked between the main protagonists. Um, mine isn't. Mine, mine sort of asks those questions. My narrative voice is, is less visible, less audible rather, um, in, in this narrative. Um, and I wanted to have fun. Look, you can't write and you shouldn't write 
unless what you write is something which gives you pleasure, unless something which you write is something you want to read yourself. I totally subscribe by that. And so the characters I created and the stories I told and the eras I went into were, I guess, closer to my heart subconsciously. Those questions, those idiosyncrasies, that brand of humor. Um, and, and I wanted to experiment, right? I, I, I get bored by a simple, typical linear narrative. I also wanted to uh, experiment with a non-linear narrative. So my story is circular. I start from 2084 BC, I go through six eras, I go to 24 AD, and then I go back, which also is sort of conveying that is there really a difference between these eras? Aren't these characters now confronting the same things? But whilst I was doing that, I realized that no, I mean, in many ways it's the same, but in some ways society is changing, right? So technology plays a huge role. Um, how human societies politically organize themselves has also changed over the millennia. Uh, so all those questions were there. Uh, so I think it was this desire to experiment with form, this desire to get away from a non uh, from a linear narrative, the desire also to explore the commonality of these epochs and, and the differences. Um, that's what uh, steered me towards doing this. I wanted to use my imagination and, and transport myself to the sixth century uh, and evoke a period and a time which fascinates me at a romantic level, at an aesthetic level, at, at the level of the, you know ideas. And I've spent a lot of time throughout my life sort of wandering through uh, these kinds of places. So they've had a huge imprint on my uh, psyche. And so in some ways I wanted to relive those moments. It was also a lot of nostalgia on my part. So that's, that's probably the sort of a rather long answer to your question. You actually uh, sort of answered my part of my uh, next question which was sure. basically, uh, so just share how long it took to write all of this. And what I originally wanted to ask was your, that, you know, uh, how consciously uh, did all, because you already mentioned that, you know, you take influence from your, the, the writers you like, mm -hmm. the sort of stories you of want course. to read, uh, but how consciously did you pick uh, the topics, the broader topics that you were talking about, environment, religion, authority, uh, are those were conscious choices or was it something that when you were building mm. the story, they sort of came into being? So I am very much, I've realized a do it as you go kind of writer when it comes to fiction, uh, which is very different from uh, what I do when I write nonfiction and especially research. Um, uh, there you do have a thesis um, and you either supplement it or you revisit it and see whether it uh, holds its uh, ground but it's informed in many ways by your research and what you can verify and what you can certify and what you can't. And you know, as you know, in academic work, footnotes and citations matter a lot. In many ways also you're entering a stream of conversation and you're coming in with your own sort of tangent or your own divergence, but you have to be part of that larger conversation. So you can't ignore it. In fiction, in some ways, you're starting with a clean slate. You can start a story anywhere and go anywhere, which is amazingly liberating, but also scary. Um, so I, I guess the initial plot that I developed, I know people and it works for them. They have the plot worked out from A to Z. Mm -hmm. I know people who have uh, pretty much all the details of the story, or they have even scenes like in a film script, right? So they have, figure out every chapter and what happens. I can't do that. And I've tried to do that. And I'm trying to do that as we speak. 
And to the extent that um, there is some a parallel between what I'm doing now and what I did earlier is that when I imagine different scenes I want to write or different um, uh, sort of episodes or characters I want to introduce, uh, I'm not doing it in any coherent fashion. I'm sort of doing it independently. And then like a jigsaw puzzle, I'll bring them together or like a mosaic, I'll try and build something. There are advantages and disadvantages to that. I mean, if you don't do it very well, you could be incoherent. Uh, but there's a lot of fiction which has been written in a very unusual ways and follows very unusual structure. So I don't subscribe to any old fashioned notions. Okay, this is how the story is and you know, it should work. It should, it should attract your attention. It should be compelling. Uh, it can be any which way. Otherwise the same kind of novel would have been written again and again and we wouldn't have seen any evolution. Uh, so I did imagine three of the six periods. I did sort of want to write something about Mohenjo-daro and Texela. It eventually became six periods. It was three earlier. Uh, some broad idea of the characters was there, but not all of them. And as I started writing, I must say that 80% of what I wrote actually came to me. It, it was that magical thing where you have an epiphany or you have an inspiration and you say, okay, why don't I deepen this character? Why don't I take this character in this direction? And then what started happening was that your memories, your personal likes and dislikes start coming in. So it turned out that there were autobiographical aspects or things in my life, which I wanted to incorporate. So I made those part of the story. Uh, there were people I'd met in my life who I wanted to either cherish or the opposite. And so I brought those into the story. Um, so yeah, for me, it has been very incremental, piecemeal, uh, and in, in, in a way, very creative, right? Because um, I sit down every night and then I start a story and then sometimes it flows and sometimes it doesn't. How much time it took me? I couldn't be a full-time writer because I was working, I still am. So I would write during the evenings which is when my mind is uh, at its best in terms of these things. I need some peace and quiet. I find the nights very sort of enigmatic. And um, I would sit down every night and I know every writer has, its own, has his own methodology and, and approach. Um, and I so the two or three things which I did, and this may be helpful to some young writers, it may not work for others, is that I uh, would write every day without a break, every night rather. Sometimes it would be four lines, sometimes it would be four pages. Sometimes I would really be in a flow, sometimes there would be a struggle. The other important thing I did was, apart from not giving it a break, is that I did not edit as I went because I'd made that mistake in the past. You write six lines, then don't look elegant to you. You spend the rest of the evening sort of tweaking them. I think it's much more important to keep writing, whether you write longhand or you type, it has two advantages. Three rather. First of all, you get the writing done. You can always tweak it, clean it up later. Secondly, you get a sense of satisfaction because otherwise you get depressed. You know, I've spent three days, I've written two paragraphs. The third thing is, I think the way the human mind works, or at least mine does uh, to a certain extent, is that my mind flows when I write. You know, so the ideas actually flow through the process of writing, not just sitting and thinking about writing, but writing. Uh, the fourth thing which I did, which is very difficult to do and which is what I've not been able to do now, is, is not to then get distracted or disheartened and start reading. You can't write and read. You have to read all your life to write. And you have to read in times when you're not writing. And at times you have to read stuff which really inspires you right, to write. 
um but agar aap you know you leave off your writing okay i'll take a break and let me read some dickens or some marquez uh first of all you'll get engrossed if you are an avid reader secondly you'll start getting this huge inferiority complex um but there has to be a lot of reading around it in the years before and and during those years and 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 i guess also frankly i mean if you want to be a writer i don't claim to be one i've just published a book that doesn't necessarily mean i'm a writer um you eventually have to get very discerning about what you read as well i'm not saying just read highbrow stuff i mean there's genre literature and for in some ways it's important for a writer to be multifarious and read multiple things right um i think the i wouldn't choose the word trashy literature or pulp literature but let's say the more fun stuff which is just not literary or anything has been as valuable as long as it's well told right the story is interesting it made me laugh it made me interested so um so i mean but for some other people mornings work they work in a different way so everybody has to find their own method and their own craft um and it may not be the exactly the same from book to book but this is what worked for me and i actually finished a manuscript the final manuscript um in about 10 months and um, then the important process starts of trying to figure out what to do with it and i'm not talking about publishing i think the first thing you do is find out whether it's of any use and that's where peers come in people who are discerning but who are also loyal i'm not saying that people who are not loyal to you will necessarily be bad people it's just that they won't read the manuscript with the same amount of critical commitment and then they also have to give you good feedback um now it can happen that and and so you need multiple people and so i went through that process and then then you also go back to the manuscript yourself and you read it again after giving it some pause and 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 then you sort of tweak it right ultimately of course when it goes to a publisher if it goes to a publisher a good editor can make a huge difference but those are subsequent journeys right so the writing journey so you can imagine that it's 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 a very difficult a very lonely process you have to sit hour after hour so you have to be really driven you have to be driven by something for some people it's just the excitement of being in print for others it's the fact that their ideas will out be out in the world for whatever it's worth and may outlaw outlive them you know we all sort of aspire to that even though what does even outlive mean how many centuries can even the best writers um survive what we know is about 4 and 1/2000 years in mesopotamian literature and and egyptian scripts so in the grand scheme of things it's nothing right uh, but we are who we are and within our sort of very humble mortal existence these are our claims to immortality which are rather laughable but i think at another level the amount of satisfaction that writing gives you the connection you make with people uh the friendships that come out of it the feedback you get the opportunities for instance this opportunity for us to have a conversation came about because the book is there right and and the book people will read and i still get feedback from people and people who like it and people who don't like it as much whatever i mean it, the point is it started a conversation and it also introduced me to a lot of new people so yeah i mean that's that's the that's the writers life part of it those who do it full time of course i i really admire them because it's a deeply demanding profession if you want to take it as a profession 
So talking about feedback and uh, what you were also earlier mentioning about, you know, why should we always be telling just linear stories? Uh, some of the feedback or some of the reviews that I was going through, some people were saying that they had some difficulty in the start, uh, you know, getting into it because of the parallel uh, storylines in the universe that was going on. And match that with the fact that, you know, we use this term in, you know, marketing these days that, you know, attention spans of people of the younger generation specifically are equal to a goldfish, which is like 0.12 seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, so if they don't get hooked onto something in that span of time, uh, they might not even bother going ahead with it. So in that mm -hmm. landscape and in that environment and, you know, wanting to tell these complex stories. And I myself have of the opinion that human brain is supposed to be, you know, be able to uh, process these complex storylines and, you know, process that sort of information and limiting ourselves to that attention span is sort of something that we are, you know, dehumanizing ourselves to some extent. But the, what's your take as an author on it, you know, because you have to sure, look at the sure, audience as well. Sure. So once again, that's a good question and, and there are various facets to it. My first response is that, uh, yes, we are uh, evolving as a species. So it's difficult to predict what we'll be like in 50 years time. Uh, I've made one attempt, but my prediction may not be right. I hope it's not right because it's very dystopic. Um, but you know, will we be part machine, part human? What does it even mean to be human? Lots of fantastic stuff has been written on it over the last 50 years, especially in the genre of science fiction. Um, so who knows? Uh, but I think storytelling will remain fundamental to human existence for as long as we survive as a species, for all the reasons um, that that's how human beings actually emerged as the dominant species. That's how they've actually managed to build empires and societies and narratives and philosophies. Um, whether the attention span issue is a temporary one or it's something which is like deeply biological uh, remains to be seen. Um, I think the way we transmit information has also changed and it's become more visual. But then at the same time, people also read a lot of text on, on screen. It's also possible that they may get sick of this tiny bits, the bombardment of tiny bits of information and move back to books, right? Or at least books would be sustained uh, uh, along with all this. Um, so that remains to be seen. Now, in terms of the immediate issue of, you know, inexpensive entertainment, which is immediately gratifying, uh, eclipsing books. I think the challenge is both for the writers and for the readers. I, I think the readers have to realize and will realize and do realize that content is what eventually matters, right? And content is, and knowledge is still in books. I mean, that's the form that it's in. You can condense it, condense it, parcel it out, simplify it, abbreviate it, but reading War and Peace and reading uh, a summary of War and Peace are always going to be different things. But then War and Peace is not for everyone, which is fine. It's never been for everyone, right? So it's for those who think that it's something deeply engaging. Um, but at the same time, War and Peace is just one kind of book. Uh, all kinds of great books have been written, which are completely different from each other. Um, a Clockwork Orange is a completely different book, right? But it's an equally valuable book. So there all, have always been tastes which have varied. So as long as the quality of writing remains good, which I think will, because there'll always be people who will be really talented, really dedicated, 
Uh, I think books will be read. I think part of the reason that we see books not being read is not necessarily the lessening of the attention span. If you look at the West, uh, it's amazing how, despite this conversation around, uh, you know, how people read less books, there have been huge spurts of growth in terms of reading, whether it's the phenomenon of Harry Potter getting the kids to start reading again, whether it's something else, it's always happened. Um, I think what happens in countries like ours is that we completely neglected books and publishing. We don't subsidize paper. We don't promote publishers. Publishers, by and large, in turn, don't promote writers or books. They don't spend anything on advertisement. Booksellers don't cooperate with the publishers. There's no national, uh, you know, rather sort of, uh, there's no national emergency or any impetus to promote reading. Uh, look at the national policy. Look at the national education budget. Are there any awards which the which this country gives to writers? There used to be, right? So those are our priorities. Um, does the private sector really sponsor anything like that? There are some good uh, developments in le recent times, literary festivals and things like that, and some private sector awards. So, I mean, I think incentives and appreciation matter. Now, if you go back a couple of decades, um, and, you know, there were digests in Urdu, publishing translations. Sabrang Digest is one good example, which used to sell 175,000 copies a month at its peak, right? So the population is much bigger and uh, you would imagine that you would still have that. So I think some of the reading will go away because people like to stare at their cell phones. But I think if enough investment was made into promoting public libraries, which are hugely neglected, subsidizing the publication of good books, putting more money into promoting writers and books, coordinating and distributing things better, having a national policy on reading, having iconic figures promote reading and making it look cool. I don't see any reason why we wouldn't sell more books. So I think even now, publishers who put in the effort, I mean, the Urdu translation of my book came out uh, some months ago, called Chan Ko Gul Kare To Ham Jane. And there, because the publisher Book Corner has this enthusiasm and alacrity, and they put effort into designing a beautiful cover, choosing good paper, promoting it, they're selling well. Not just my book, they're selling a lot of books very well because these fundamentals and essentials are just not being done. So you can't expect to sit back and moan and groan and publish the book on terrible paper with a horrible cover and spend rupees 500 on promotion pay the author nothing and sit back and then say, oh, people don't read. I mean, the books used to look better 20 years ago. Yeah. They used to feel better. So uh, like any, I mean, you're a marketing person. It's as much about marketing as it is about the quality of writing. Yeah. And it's about the enabling environment. So I'm very hopeful. I think if, if some people get into the profession of selling and publishing books in a proper fashion, books are not going to go away anywhere. Uh, with this, I will invite Amar to ask his question. Yes, hi, Dr. Sama. Uh, how are you? DJ, I'm very well, thank you. First of all, I am so, so uh, lucky to attend this uh, session today because uh, you literally uh, said a lot for uh, upcoming writers, like writing in one go and not stopping to edit and continuously write and then read uh, read first a lot and you know all you've covered it from every angle i'm so grateful 
the problem is uh, the APS massacre uh, in 2014, uh, you know, that APS Peshawar massacre, it happened. And I am really, really yeah. disturbed, disturbed about it. And what I am trying to do is to write a book about or book on it. Sure. I, okay. To keep this incident alive, because with the passage of time, people are forgetting it. Sure. Uh, up, as you said, KG, uh, you have been all your life, uh, you have been lucky enough to read a lot of books, uh, fiction, non-fiction. Uh, can you give me any references or can you recommend me any books to read before I re write this book about this APS massacre uh, incident? So um, on the off, the off the top of my head, it may be difficult, but I may be more than happy to uh, revisit uh, the idea. So what you're looking at is, is a massive tragedy. Yes. And, and there are various ways of writing about it, right? So there's not a single way to write about a tragedy. You could write about it in terms of a very logical sequence of events, or you could write a book which is deeply impressionistic, or you could write a book which uses some other form. I think ultimately, if I were you, I would, after doing my basic research, because at the end of the day, you're looking at a historical incident, and um, there are people who've written in more recent times um, uh, fiction which looks like a reportage. Right, so it looks like a report uh, because it's very much factual, but it has the flavor of fiction. And the my to my mind, one of the writers which immediately comes to mind is the, uh, I think she's Ukrainian, uh, Svetlana. Her last name will come to me. She's a Nobel laureate, and she's wrote uh, written a whole bunch of really exciting books, which are a cross between fiction and nonfiction. Uh, she's written a book about the Chernobyl disaster and uh, looked at it from various angles in terms of how the contamination and the toxicity uh, ruined the landscape and how lives were ruined. Uh, she's written about uh, wars um, and, and things like that. So that's one model. The other model about uh, a tragic episode and writing it in a very raw fashion, I would think in terms of recent stuff I've read is the Booker Prize winning author, Pat Barker. Uh, the Ghost Road is her most famous novel, which is about the First World War, which is a cross between a stream of conscious kind of description uh, of, of what's going on, uh, a completely fictitious character who's one of the protagonists, and actual historical characters uh, who are very well-known poet soldiers like Wilfred Owen and, and Siegfried Sassoon uh, in the First World War, who wrote very compelling poems about it, castigating this entire glorification of war. That's another very different way of writing about it. And if I'm sure if I think more about it, but I think what will matter ultimately is that which style suits your natural style, your natural style of expression, or which style of writing really inspires you. There's no you hard know, and uh, fast rule. Yes, you know, but uh, I seriously have to uh, keep my uh, audience uh, in mind because, you know, I want the Pakistani, only primarily the Pakistani public to read it. I'm not bothered about the others. No, so no, that's I, fine. I need to keep. I need to keep that in mind. That's fine, but my point is that you'll have to choose a narrative style, and when we look for narrative styles, we look everywhere because what we're looking for is what is most compelling. And if there is a narrative style which has been proven to be very compelling, then that's worth a look. I can't, frankly, think of any. Pakistani fiction in English or Pakistani literature in English, which is immediately a model. 
exactly exactly so exactly. that's why that that's why i mentioned these two writers to you yes okay dr sama uh, thank you so much for the my pleasure my pleasure thank you. thank you uh, thank you for your time so it was a pleasure and uh, hopefully aapka pakistani version of the book is coming soon and we'll get to see that version in that cover art as well thank you for your time thank you so much it was lovely talking to you khuda hafiz hafiz khuda hafiz